Thank you so much, Sandy, for blessing us and leading us in worship today again. Uh, we really do appreciate it. And thank you, Ashlyn, for your piano as well. Well, all right. Well, last week I had set to pre- preach this sermon uh, in a camaraderie to our Canadian brothers. And so I thought since we weren't able to meet last week due to the weather uh, that I would go ahead and still preach the message. Because uh, I think regardless of the timing, it's definitely a message that we all need uh, to hear from the Word of God. So if you have your Bibles, if you would open up to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13 will be our text today. Earlier this month on January 8th, the Canadian government passed a bill called C4, which would ban, quote, conversion therapy. This bill would criminalize, quote, causing another person to undergo conversion therapy, promoting or advertising conversion therapy. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been hearing this conversion therapy probably only for the last year or two. Uh, but listen how they, how they define it in the preamble of the bill. They say this, they say to believe that, quote, heterosexuality, cisgender, cisgender gender identity, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred other over other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expression is a, quote, myth. Let's think about that again, what they just said. They said the idea of heterosexuality or cisgender gender identity and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions is a myth. That's what they say in their preamble. Essentially what they just called what we're teaching today, what God's word, what God created at the beginning, they're calling it a myth. The idea that one should prefer the sexual identity to what they were born with, they're saying is a myth. They define conversion therapy as a, quote, practice, treatment, or service designed to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual, change a person's gender identity to cisgender, change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth, repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior, repress a person's non-cisgender gender identity, or repress a or reduce a person's gender expression that does not conform to the sex assigned to the person at birth. So what does this bill do? Well, this bill essentially and easily can you be used to target pastors that preach the need of conversion from sin, including homosexuality. This is what else what else the bill says, quote, everyone who knowingly causes another person to undergo conversion therapy, including by providing conversion therapy to that other person is guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment for a term of not more than five years. Similarly, everyone who knowingly promotes or advertises conversion therapy is guilty of an indictable offense, liable to term no more than two years. So again, essentially what this bill does, it outlaws preachers calling sinners to repentance. Sinners that are in a sinful 
uh, life of homosexuality or transgenderism or any other type of uh, sex outside of marriage, calling them to repentance, this bill essentially outlaws that. And you might think, well, you know, I'm so glad that's in Canada. I'm so glad that's over the border. That can't possibly be in South Carolina. But make no mistake, my friends, there are lawmakers right now in our country that would would be very happy to see a bill like this passed in the United States of America. And many states have actually tried. And so you might think, well, that's great. We're in South Carolina and we're in a conservative state and we're in God-fearing state and that, that's never going to come here. Well, I have you know, and I didn't know if you knew this, but this actually was passed similar law, an ordinance in the city of Columbia last year. While we were all sleeping, the city of Columbia passed this conversion therapy ban on minors, but it's a very similar ban that they passed in June 15th of last year. <clears throat> they banned conversion therapy on minors by, quote, licensed providers, which among other things includes certified counselors. So do you see what that means? That means in the city of Columbia, certified biblical counselor, it's against the law in Columbia to call a minor to repentance to give them the truth that no, they are the gender that they were born with. They're male because God made them male and they need not to pretend and live in the delusion that they are a female. They could get fined for that in the city of Columbia right here in our conservative state of South Carolina. The ordinance defines conversion therapy uh, as reparative therapy. That means any practice or treatment that seeks to change and change an individual's sexual orientation or gender identity, including efforts to change behaviors or gender expressions or to eliminate or reduce sexual or romantic attractions or feelings towards individuals of the same gender. That's from the Columbia ordinance from less than one year ago. So many Christians ask, well, what is the big deal, right? Why don't we just show love and grace and tolerance and, you know, not scare people away? And, and why do we need to speak out about these issues? And we see many churches and many pastors are silent on the issue and why. You ever really thought why? Why aren't churches, why aren't Christians being more vocal why aren't churches and pastors being more vocal? Well, in my experience, I found it, it's one or two things. It's one, fear of being labeled a bigot. People love to be liked. And so there's a fear of being labeled wrongly to be ostracized or even be persecuted as a church to camp, come up and stand up against an ordinance like in the city of Columbia. Or the other reason is just, quite frankly, apathy. It's just most Christians are asleep. Most churches are confined within the four walls of the church, and they're just apathetic to it all. They're just saying, well, why bother? Uh, some even, I think, in reform circles are apathetic that, well, why bother? Why stand up and, and speak truth in the midst of this? Because isn't everything going to get worse anyways? Don't we have biblical prophecy that everything's going to get worse and, and everything's going to come to hell in a handbasket? Why try to put lipstick on a pig? I'm just going to sit and share the gospel, and I'm not going to stand for these other things outside of the church. But I hope to address that today, why I believe that that's not the right approach, that there's a balance. Uh, so there is two things I want to address today, and that's one, the biblical view of sexuality. And I want to do that by restoring the beauty and sanctity of marriage. And that's why the title of my message is Restoring the Sanctity of Marriage. 
and to also underscore the Bible's view of those who step outside the bounds of marriage. So I want to address that first. And then number two, I want to address the root of the problem. What is the root of this problem that we're seeing specifically to sexual immorality? And what and why are we, why are we to take action as Christians, as a church? And how are we to do it in a way that honors God? How are we to engage in the battle for truth? So let's look at our text, Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to read one verse, and that's verse 4. The word of the Lord says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Heavenly Father, I pray as I preach your word and as I deliver the message here in the word of God that you would be with me and that you would use me as a vessel, Father, to speak the truth, that you would convict our hearts, encourage us, equip us, Lord, we pray, and that what I speak would be uh, only that which you have spoken through the Holy Spirit, through your word, in Jesus' name, amen. If we look at the book of Hebrews, it's important to look at the historical context when this epistle was written. And I want to show you just a little bit of the historical context, specifically to that of sexual sins and sexual immorality. You know, we live in this day and age where we think, wow, it's so bad. Well, there's never been anything like it. Well, the first century, friends, it was pretty bad when it comes to sexual immorality. In Rome, you had sexual promiscuity. It was ingrained in the whole fabric of society. Men in Rome were socially accepted and even considered more masculine when they engaged in all kind of debauchery and even forced sex upon men and women alike. It was a token. It was, they were considered uh, of higher rank, of, of more masculinity, as long as long as the people that they were forcing their sexual sins upon were of a lower class. Pedophilia to the sickest pinnacle was accepted as well in the society in the first century Rome. Society viewed this as a sign, again, of male masculinity and dominance. Well, if we go over a little bit on the map in Ephesus, Ephesus was a cesspool of iniquity and debauchery. Every sexual sin that you wouldn't even want to think of. Sexual immorality was even part of religious worship, whether you had drunken orgies to gain some sort of ecstatic experience and communion with false deities. The Church of Corinth, this whole society was an economic society built on the very fabric of sexual immorality. So we're not living in any type of new era, friends. This what we're seeing today in the depravity of our nation, the depravity of other nations when it comes to sexual sins is not something new. Uh, it's been around. And that's the context we have here in the first century uh, in Europe and in the Middle East. So we have the, the book of Hebrews here. The book of Hebrews, the context of Hebrews, just briefly, is all centered around the preeminence of Christ or the superiority of Christ. John MacArthur's outline of Hebrews uh, points to this well, outlines it that the superiority of Christ's position, that he is better than angels, better than Moses. Hebrews points to the superiority of Christ's priesthood. He is the better priest. He is the high priest that we need. 
the superiority of Christ's ministry. Christ, through a superior covenant, he was the ultimate and the superior sacrifice. He was the once for all sacrifice. That's the context of Hebrews. The writer wants us to know that Christ is better than the angels. Christ is the better priest. Christ is the ultimate and better sacrifice. And then we come to chapter 13, where the writer takes a turn and now spending the first 12 or so chapters on orthodoxy, on right believing. He then goes into right behaving and gives some exhortations to the reader on how to live a superior Christian life. And there's some really uh, poignant commands that the writer gives. And that's where we lead to our text, Hebrews 13, verse 4. So because of all of the superiority of Christ, because Christ is better than the angels, because he's superior in his priesthood, in his work, and in his person, because of all this, Christians ought to live a superior life. Christians ought to live a holy life and righteous life, pleasing to God. And in chapter 13, he gives some commands on how to live a superior life in the power of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 13, 4 says, Marriage is to be held in honor above all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. The first thing to note, friends, is the word honor. He says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all. This word is only used a few times in the New Testament. It means something of a great price, something that's precious, something esteemed or especially dear. It was used in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 12, where Paul references, Now if a man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones. It's describing what type of... Of stones. They're very precious. They're valuable. They're highly priced. It's also used in James 5 7, where James speaks about the farmer who waits for precious produce of the soil. And I think most notably of all, the Apostle Peter uses it in his first, epi- uh, first epistle, where he says this in chapter 1 of verse 18. He says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. Verse 19. But you were redeemed, but it says, but with precious blood. That's the same word used in Hebrews 13.4. You were not redeemed with these perishable things, but you were redeemed with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Friends, marriage is to be precious. Marriage that God created between one man and one woman is to be precious and honored and esteemed above all. Marriage is to be treated as unique. Marriage is to be treated as its as if it's in a class of its own. Marriage is to be treasured. Marriage is to be regarded as something sacred. I'm afraid in our culture, in our day, marriage is so, so dispensable nowadays. Marriage comes and marriage goes. Even in the church, the divorce rates are the same as outside the church. And I think that's to our shame. Marriage has been treated as just another thing. 
It's not treated as a covenant between God and between man, but only as a conditional agreement. You do this and I'll stay. And I'll do this only if you do what I need. That is not how God defines a marriage covenant. So marriage is to be treasured. It's to be highly regarded. And if you look, it says it's to be highly regarded among all. Or your version might say by all. This is a preposition. Literally means by or for or among all. Marriage is to be held honorable among all of us. By all of us. In all of us. And there is a hint, I think, uh, that this marriage, the institution of marriage, is not to just be honored among those inside the church. Marriage is an institution that God created from the foundation of the world. It is to be highly honored. It is to be precious among all of mankind, those outside the church. Our government is to be holding the sacred, uh, the sacred institution of marriage highly regarded. They ought to hold it as precious above all, but they have trampled it. They have made what one commentator said, reading about uh, slavery laws, they called it the covenant of death that our country had some hundred something, 200 years ago. And now we have our government that allows marriage outside of how God defines it. They've made a covenant of death, our Supreme Court, just some years ago. So marriage, the writer underscores the preciousness and the sacredness of marriage is to be honored by all, the entire human race. As a matter of fact, brothers and sisters, this is why when anybody attacks the sanctity of marriage as God defines it, if anybody tries to redefine it or twist it or add to it, it is a frontal attack on the word of God. And then more importantly, it's a frontal attack on the living True God. Marriage ought to be held as precious and honorable for many, many, many reasons. I'm going to detail uh, just a few. Marriage ought to be held as precious first because it is God's first institution. It was enacted at creation. Turn to Genesis chapter 2. Marriage ought to be held as precious because it was God's first institution. Genesis chapter 2, starting at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a, a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. Verse 22. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Then verse 24 says, for this reason, what reason? That God made Eve from Adam 
and that they would be bone of bones and flesh of flesh. For this reason, it says, verse 24, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall be called, excuse me, they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Brothers and sisters, here we have it in black and white. God ordained the institution, the covenant of marriage at creation. Now, if you recall Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, when he was asked about divorce, Jesus quoted this text right here and said, For this reason, man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Then Jesus said this, For what God has joined together, let no man separate. Now, I believe Jesus was talking about twofold things there, talking about marriage in general, a specific marriage that God joins them, let no man separate, which later he does give grounds for divorce, for sexual immorality. And we know there's another abandonment clause that Paul gives later on. But also, I believe that that Jesus is talking about the institution as a whole, what God has joined together, what God has created from the beginning of time. The covenant of marriage, let no man separate. So do you see when the government of Canada or our government or or whatever separates the institution of marriage and changes it? It is a frontal attack on the Lord Jesus, on God himself. Because what God has said he has joined together, let no man separate. Amen. So that's one reason we ought to hold marriage in high regard is because it's the very first institution that God created. Not only that, but we should hold marriage as honorable above all else as precious because, too, it is the means by which God uses to bring about generational faithfulness. It is the means by which God uses to bring about generational faithfulness. God's ordinary way to build his church is by way of the family. To have God honoring marriages as Christ is the head, husbands leading in godliness and love, wives being a loving helpmeet to her husband, fathers and mothers bringing up their children in the ways of the Lord. This is the primary means, brothers and sisters, that God uses to bring about general, generational faithfulness. It's not the only means. God uses evangelism outside of the family. God uses evangelism on the streets to call people. Even evangelism and the preaching of the gospel in the church, God uses to build his church. But if you look from Genesis to Revelation, the primary way that God brings generational faithfulness is through a marriage and through the family. Look at Psalm 78.5. It says, for he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children. Verse six, that the generation to come might know even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children, that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments generational faithfulness. In Malachi 2, the Lord, he's rebuking Israel's leaders for forsaking their Jewish wives. He calls forsaking their, quote, wives of the covenant. 
Verse 14, and he rebukes them for marrying foreign wives. Malachi then tells them that God gave them one woman for the purpose of what? Malachi 2.15 says, for the purpose of godly offspring. Godly offspring. Matthew Henry said, quote, The rising or the raising up of a godly seed, which shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation, is one great end of the institution of marriage. But that it is a good reason why the marriage bed should be kept undefiled and the marriage bond inviolable. Husbands and wives must therefore live in the fear of God that their seed may be a godly seed. And this carries well over into the New Testament with much emphasis on husbands and wives raising children in the Lord as God uses Christ-centered homes and Christ-fearing parents to teach and to convert their children to God, to Christ. 2 Timothy 1.5, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which was first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that is in you as well. God's ordinary means for generational faithfulness is through the family. Third, we should honor and hold precious marriage and the marriage bed because it is a picture of the gospel. Number three, if you're taking notes, it's a picture of the gospel. And specifically, friends, it's a picture of the relationship between the Lord Jesus Christ and the church by which he said the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 22, says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. <clears throat> but as the church is subject to Christ... So also the wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, that he, Christ, <clears throat> might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. Verse 31. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. So brothers and sisters, when you have a God-fearing husband, a God-fearing wife, that are, that are functioning in the roles that God gave them. When you have husbands who love their wives enough that they would die for their wives. When they love their wives enough that they would wash them with the water of the word. What does that mean? 
Well, it means that a loving husband who loves Christ would never put his wife in a situation that would make her stumble as far as, as, as he is able. The husband will make sure that the wife is sitting under sound biblical teaching that will nourish his wife with solid doctrine, that will nourish his wife with the resources and tools that she can use so that she can grow in her faith, that will love his wife enough to study the scriptures and to be the home household theologian so that he may not know all the answers, but he's going to go study and going to go find the answers. That is what a loving husband does to cherish his wife on top of being the physical protector being the physical provider. And then a God-fearing wife that loves her husband and is that a help me to her husband and helping her husband fulfill the God-ordained plan that God has for her husband and supporting her husband by by supporting and managing the home in a God-honoring way. It is a picture of the gospel. Again, it's a picture of Christ's relationship with his church. The more that our marriages can grow in Christ-likeness, the more that we show the world a picture of Christ and his church. And that's the third reason why we ought to hold marriage as precious, as honorable, above all else. And the last two I'm just going to mention because they're pretty uh, straightforward is we should hold marriage as honorable is because that's what God uses to populate the earth. He said, be fruitful and multiply. God uses marriage to populate the earth. And fifth, to prevent sexual immorality. Did you know that that's a blessing? That God uses your marriage to prevent you from falling into sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2 and verse 9, the Apostle Paul says in both of those texts uh, that the marriage is to keep you from falling into sexual immorality. This is where he exhorts the husbands that your body is not your own, but it's your wife's. And your wives that your body is not your own, but it's your husband. And so he, if you read that text, he is saying uh, that in order for you not to fall away into sexual temptation, that you ought to not separate yourself from too long of a time, that you should come together so that you're not tempted. So God uses marriage to keep you from falling into sexual immorality. So for these reasons, brothers and sisters, and many more, we ought to hold marriage as precious, as honorable above all. And so now we have established the sanctity of marriage. I want to further address what Scripture says to those who would step outside of the bounds of marriage and seek to pervert it. Back to our text, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. Marriage bed is to be undefiled. That word undefiled means unsoiled, free from that which by nature of a thing is deformed and debased. The marriage bed is to be unimpaired, it's to be impeccable. The marriage bed is a euphemism that the writer uses, meaning sexual intercourse. It is to be undefiled. God created marriage as the institution, and sex inside marriage is to be undefiled. It's to be spotless. It's to be unblemished. 
It's to be untarnished. It's to be pure. It's to be perfect. And what does that look like? Well, God has prescribed it. One man, one woman, in holy matrimony, in a holy covenant before God, that is a marriage bed that is undefiled. And that word undefiled, it's used only four times in the New Testament. And I'll just read one of them. It's talking about our Lord and Savior himself. Hebrews 7.26 says, For it, is, it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, and undefiled. That's the word that the, the writer of Hebrews uses in our text. That the marriage bed, sex, is to be undefiled. It is to be as pure and as perfect as our Lord and Savior himself. Well, you might ask, well, what, what defiles the marriage bed? What exactly causes the marriage bed to be defiled? Well, friends, it's any sex outside of the ordinance of the institution of marriage. Any sex outside of marriage. That includes homosexuality. That includes lesbianism. That includes bisexual relationships. It includes transgender sex. But it also includes pornography sex. It includes non-intercourse sex outside of marriage. It includes sex that would be uh, sex that would be outside of marriage and that would be self-gratifying sex. But it also includes sexual lust. That falls under this category as well. We know that Jesus said that if a man lusts after a woman in his heart, he has committed adultery in his heart. So from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible screams. The Bible screams to avoid the defilement of sex and keep it within the bounds of how God made it within the sanctity of marriage. And it's so sad in our culture and the church that the church won't stand up and just say what God's word says. That so many churches and pastors want to dance around the topic, either not mention it, or when they do mention it, they, they, they seem to go above and beyond everything else and try to minimize sexual immorality. We see this from leading evangelical leaders. Just a couple years ago, the former SBC president, J.D. Greer, preaching through the book of Romans, went out of his way when the text specifically dealt with homosexuality in Romans 1. He went out of his way to make comments like we should whisper what God whispers about and we should shout what God shouts about and that God whispers about homosexuality so we should just whisper about it. The text was dealing with men burning against men in their lusts. The text dealt with homosexuality and how God's wrath was being revealed from heaven but he says that the Bible whispers about homosexuality, so we should just whisper about it. And the majority of his sermon was about the, we should shout about religious hypocrisy because that's what the Bible shouts about. Uh, but friends, the Bible is very clear. It does not whisper about homosexuality. It absolutely shouts about homosexuality. We were just reading the other night in our uh, family worship about how when Abraham went and he had Sarah lie about Sarah being his wife and that he was his sister to uh, Abimelech and Abimelech almost took Sarah and then it was revealed to him that that was Sarah's husband and I'm sorry, Abraham's husband. 
And he went to Abraham and said, you have almost caused me to do this great sin. And that sin was sexual immorality. A few times in the Old Testament, it's not just sin. It's a a great sin it's referred to. Our culture has not only defiled the marriage bed, but our culture no longer even hides it and no longer even blushes at the perverseness that it promotes. It reminds me of the days of Jeremiah when the Lord was pronouncing judgment upon Israel in their apostasy. In chapter 8, verse 12, he says, Were they ashamed because of the abomination they had done? They certainly were not ashamed. And they did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time of their punishment, they shall be brought down, says the Lord. So in this day, they were claiming to have God on their side, in, verse, in chapter 7, if you look. But they were committing all kinds of sins and debauchery. And, and, and he's rebuking them, saying, you don't even know how to blush. You don't even know how to hide your sin. Not that we should hide our sin, but they didn't even care. It was all out, and it was being flaunted all out in the open. And that's where we see our society today, that our society doesn't even try to blush or conceal these sins. They openly flaunt it, and then they openly attack you if you're against it. They not only openly attack you if you're against it, they put pressure on you and force you to accept their open debauchery. And if you don't, you're labeled a bigot. You're labeled a hater. And you ought to be canceled. It's important to know, friends, as we see the openness of sexual immorality, as we see it being flaunted in our country, we need to know that this is the very fight that they're doing against God himself. It's a frontal attack on God himself. It's as if they're shaking their fists at God and saying, you are not our king. We will live how we want to live. And we see that in the path of Romans chapter 1. We see how God gave them over, which is an act of judgment that's said there three times in Romans chapter 1. How God gave them over to degrading passions, verse 36. For their woman exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And it says that God gave them over again in verse 28 to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. But it's something very key to this text in Romans and in verse 32. It talks about these people who, although they know God exists, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So God gives them over and they keep going deeper into sin, deeper into sexual immorality. And verse 32 says about these people, it says, although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but give heartily approval to those who practice them. And that's exactly where we stand today. Not only in the LGBT uh, movements that's going on, but also in our governments that claim to be Christian. They, they know the ordinance of God, but they not only do the same, they give hearty approval to those who practice the same. And there's no longer any blushing. There's no longer. It's all out in the open. And if you've noticed, if you've been awake, the defilement of the marriage bed has progressively gotten worse over the last 10 years. It's progressively gotten worse. 
over the last, if you think about, before any of us were born. What was the scandalous sin 75, 80 years ago? The scandalous sin was adultery, was it not? You didn't hear anything else about all of this deep, dark, wicked sexual immorality that's in our nation today. That was the scandalous sin. And guess what? Adultery was illegal in almost every state in our nation. And did you know there's still laws on the books for many states where adultery is actually illegal? It is a crime to cheat on your wife in many states, although that is not executed anymore. But this is just an opportunity to show you that we can't be detached by what's going on in our government today because government's laws have a direct effect on the morality of the people. When the government enacts unjust and wicked laws to allow for all kind of sin to happen, well, guess what happens with our society? It's ingrained that, oh, it's okay to do this. Because, friends, when the government enacts a law, they are making a truth statement that this is good. This is bad. Don't do this, else you will suffer these consequences. So adultery used to be illegal and it used to be practiced in our nation. Uh, But now, again, when the government says it's okay to have any kind of marriage you want... It's okay to marry anybody you want. The progression just goes deeper and deeper and deeper. I mean, five, ten years ago, no one, have ever, no one would have ever had thought that pedophilia would be an actual thing that people are starting to accept. But it actually is. Many LGBT networks are accepting pedophilia as another LGBTP, if you will, And there are many pedophilia groups that are advocating to be accepted because that's how they were born. To so accept us for who we are. And five years ago, you would have thought that was unthinkable. Even today, it's still unthinkable, but it's happening. And friends, it won't stop. It won't stop. Let's go back to our text. The writer gives a stark reason why marriage is to be held in honor and why it should be undefiled. He says, for fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. The King James Version says, but whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. The word there, fornicator or whoremonger, is the word in the Greek, pornos which is where we get our American word, porn. This is speaking to any unlawful sex, an adulterer, any unfaithfulness in marriage. So you have in this text, you have these fornicators, which is any sex outside of marriage. Okay, It could be before sex. Uh, it could be homosexuality. Uh, it could be lesbian sex. And then you have adulterers, and that's specifically speaking of unfaithfulness, Inside marriage. So the writer of Hebrews takes both buckets of sexual immorality, fornicators and adulterers, and it says, For God will judge them. This is a stern warning that the writer of Hebrews is giving. It's sort of like in their context, it's sort of like a bucket of cold water being splashed on the writers 
to say, hey, look, marriage bed needs to be lifted up higher. You guys aren't lifting up the preciousness of the marriage bed. And not only that, you ought to do it because God is going to pronounce judgment and condemnation upon those who are fornicators and those who are adulterers. So this is seriousness of tampering with God's design of marriage. And when the writer says that God will judge them, he's not talking about a temporal judgment. He's talking about an everlasting, eternal condemnation to those who are fornicators and those who are adulterers. As a matter of fact, in the end of your Bible, in Revelation chapter 22, one of the marks of those who are outside the kingdom of God says they're fornicators. God is very serious about his covenant of marriage. In Leviticus chapter 20, God pronounced the death penalty upon those who would commit any type of sex outside of marriage. Two of the Ten Commandments reference sexual immorality. We know the Seventh Commandment, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But what about Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife? Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. So coveting is a commandment, but specifically coveting after your neighbor's wife. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Four of the first descriptions that the Apostle Paul gives to those who will not inherit the kingdom of God that will suffer eternal condemnation have to do with sexual immorality. Fornicators, pornos, the adulterers, the effeminate, which is described in the Old Testament that is an abomination of the Lord for a man to dress like a woman. Now that doesn't mean in our culture that if a man, you know, or say in Scotland, a man puts on a skirt, that's not what it's referencing. It's a man dressing to be like a woman because the person wants to be like a woman. That is an abomination to the Lord. And that is the word here, effeminate. These will not inherit the kingdom of God. And in Ephesians 5, chapter, or chapter 5, verse 5, after in verse 3, he says, Immorality and impurity and greed must not even be named among you. Look at verse 5. It says, For this you know with certainty, underline certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who's an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God. God. Then in verse 7, he says, Therefore, do not be partakers with them. That means co participant. Don't participate in that sexual immorality. Don't even touch it. Because God pronounces judgment on those who are fornicators. He says, Again, with certainty, no immoral person will enter the kingdom of God. And, brothers and sisters, this is why it's so important. Because there's no gospel without it. There is no gospel without this truth. What do I mean by that? 
How can somebody be converted and repent of a sinful life of fornication, homosexuality, lesbianism, transgenderism? The very sin that God's pouring wrath upon, how can somebody be converted of that if they're not told that that is a sin and an abomination in the sight of God? So, friends, there is no gospel without the truth of the word here. We must be vocal. We must stand in the context that God has given you. We must stand for the truth of God. We can't, as one uh, pastor said this week, we can't coddle people to hell. We can't coddle them to hell. We must be upfront. And it is more loving to be upfront and honest with somebody and say, look, I love you, but your lifestyle, your lifestyle, according to the word of God, going in only one direction and that's hell. But the good news is that there's grace, that you can be saved from your sin. But friend, it is a sin and we need to be able to be bold enough to fear God enough to tell people the truth when it comes to to homosexuality, transgenderism, lesbianism, and all the rest of the sexual sins. Well, I want to end with addressing the root of the issue. And I'll try to be brief in this. I went a little long in the first half. What is the root of this issue that we see in our country with sexual immorality running rampant, with transgenderism running rampant, with the country trying to indoctrinate Children to accept these sinful lifestyles as anything as normal. Well, there is an overarching cause, and that is the judgment of God. I truly believe that. God is judging our nation and giving our nation over to a depraved mind. I truly believe that. And also, we are fighting against Satan. Satan is behind all of this sexual perverseness. That is absolutely true. Now, one might think, well, if this is the judgment of God, why even say anything? Why fight against the judgment of God? I should just stay quiet, keep to myself. Well, friends, first of all, you and I have a duty to speak the truth. You and I do have a duty to defend the truth, to have an answer for the hope that we have. So it is our duty not to sit back and not say anything. It's our duty to speak, first of all, no matter what God's doing. Also, if you think about like the prophets, Isaiah, for instance, God told Isaiah to go preach to a nation, but at the same time, God hardened their hearts and told Isaiah that they're not going to listen to you. I'm judging them. Does that exempt Isaiah from going to preach as God told him to preach? No, he's still responsible to do what God called him to do. So friends, even though this is definitely a judgment upon God, we are still called to defend the truth. So I want to just briefly address what the direct cause of this and the homosexuality piece is just a piece. We also have the slaughtering of babies, the abortion piece. We have a tyrannical government piece. We have all these pieces of all this sin that's going on. And these are pieces of an overarching issue that is a worldview that we are competing with. That is what I see as a direct issue. What is that worldview? That worldview is secular humanism. We have a humanistic worldview that, did you know, is a religion? It was actually pronounced in a Supreme Court case years ago that humanism is an actual religion. 
And if you look at some of the humanistic documents, the manifestos, Humanist Manifesto 1 of 1933, they actually define their beliefs as a religion. So there's no neutrality in this, friends. And this is what churches and Christians need to wake up, that they want you to be neutral in your beliefs. They want you to set aside your beliefs and come to a table of neutrality. And let's just talk about what's good for society. But they're coming with their presuppositions. They're coming with their humanistic religion. And there is a religion, as I said. There are tenets of the faith. There are even heresies. Uh, And I have the definition, I can share it with you, Uh, but for the sake of time, we'll just go over that. But it is considered a religion by those who originated the humanistic worldview. So this is where the battle lies, friends. We can't fight God's judgment, right? But we can fight a worldview that seeks to get rid of the existence of God and get rid of the existence of Jesus Christ. We can definitely fight that, and that is where the battle lies lies. So we must not fight. We must not defend the truth from a place of neutrality. It's a losing battle. What do I mean by that? Too many times I see people fighting for the sanctity of marriage with absolutely no standard by which they can say marriage is right. They throw Jesus and the Bible away and try to argue that marriage is right because fill in the blank. Because it's good for this society, because it helps populate the earth, because this and that. But friends, they're doing the same thing that the humanistic worldview is doing. They don't have a standard by which they can say that marriage is good. They don't have a standard by which they they can say that transgenderism is wrong to teach kids. So we must not come to a place of where we come with a place of neutrality. What, and again, just to, just to say what I mean, to try to explain what I mean, we must exalt Christ when we're defending the truth. We must say it's right because God rules and reigns and he makes the rules. Who cares if you're, if you're looked at a, a, as a narrow-minded bigot? You're going to honor God. Because Christ says so, we need to submit And it's a losing battle when we fight from a place of neutrality. It's a losing battle because we dishonor Christ. I truly believe if we're trying to defend things like marriage, if we're trying to defend things like uh, abortion or defend, uh, defend a right to life, if we're trying to defend these things without using an objective standard of truth, which is God's word, without extolling and exalting Christ as king, I don't think God is with you on that. God's not with us on that. Number two, it also, the forces of darkness is fighting the other side. Satan is using all of his pawns to indoctrinate and to bring the country and the church even into more sin. So you're fighting a losing battle. Francis Safer said this, quote, Most fundamentally, our culture, society, government, and law are in the condition they are in, not because of a conspiracy, but because the church has forsaken its duty to be the salt of the culture. Because the church has forsaken its duty to be the salt of the culture. End quote. Brothers and sisters, we must declare 
outside the church walls. We must declare the rule and the reign of Christ. We must declare the sanctity of marriage. We must declare the truth of what marriage is because Christ has authority over marriage. Christ has authority over sex and we ought to proclaim it and not leave Christ at the door. In conclusion, I want to exhort each of you to raise your view of marriage and to defend the truth against anything that would distort it. My brothers and sisters, before you can fight the sanctity of marriage, sorry, before you can fight for the sanctity of marriage outside, you must fight for the sanctity of marriage inside, in your own marriage, in your own life. Proverbs chapter 6, Solomon is exhorting him to observe the commandments of the Lord, to to always wear them around your neck, to, to have them when you walk about. They'll guide you. They'll watch over you. They'll talk to you. The commandments, a lamp, he says, a teaching, it's the light. And why does he say this? To keep you from the evil woman, to keep you from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Before we can fight for the sanctity of marriage and the pureness of marriage on the outside, friends, we must clean our own house. And that goes with our own hearts. We can't be fighting for sexual immorality when we're looking at stuff we're not supposed to be looking at, lusting after things we're not supposed to be lusting at, having relationships we're not supposed to be having. God is not with us. We must look at our heart. We must fight for sexual purity inside before we can ever defend sexual purity outside. So friends, if your life is marked by sexual immorality by any kind, whether you're married, whether you're single, whether it be internal, whether it be external, be warned that God thinks very highly of marriage and anything outside of that. The judgment of God is upon you. Repent. Repent of your sexual immorality. Revelation 22, verse 15, I mentioned it earlier. Outside of the kingdom of God are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. That word immoral person, again, is pornos. It's those Outside of the sexual limitations that God gives inside of marriage. So again, friends, if there's any sexual immorality in your life, if there's anything that you've been harvesting or hiding in your heart, there's no sense of going to try to defend marriage outside the four walls of these church churches. You need to repent. You need to come clean and confess your sins to God and to confess your sins against those whom you've sinned against. You need a clean house first. The Apostle Peter says judgment begins in the household of God. So before, again, as a church, as a person, we must take a hard look at ourselves. And we must first clean out our own hearts, clean out our house, clean out our marriage, clean out our church. Then not only should we be speaking truth to the secular world, but we need to clean house inside the church universal. And we need to speak to other Christians, further Christians and other churches and other leaders to get their stuff right. How many churches, how many leaders this year in our church will fall 
into sexual immorality. A lot. It's every time we turn around. If sexual immorality is a practice in your life, I fear for you. I fear you might not be saved. Could you be backslidden? Yes, you could be. But you need to repent. You need to come to Christ. And you need to stop making provision for the flesh, as it says in Romans chapter 13. God is faithful and just, and he will forgive you of your sins. But you must come and you must confess your sins. You must agree with God that what you're doing is immoral. It's wrong. It is an abomination to God. You have defiled the marriage bed and you need to repent. But there's grace. Oh, there's grace. If you look at, to to wrap it up, 1 Corinthians 6, where he says that none of the fornicators or adulterers will enter into the kingdom of God. In verse 11, he says, such were some of you. Such were some of me. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the spirit of God. And friends, that's what God can do for you in your sexual immorality. He can wash you of your sins. He can cleanse you. He can renew you and give you a heart that doesn't seek those things which you ought not to be seeking. So let's examine our hearts today. Let's clean our hearts. And then let's go out there and defend the truth and exalt Christ and His institution and the covenant that He made in marriage at the beginning of creation. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are, we are so unworthy to come before You. We are so unworthy to come and pray to You, God. But by the death of Your Son, the work of Jesus Christ, we can come and we can commune with You, Lord. Lord, I thank You for Your Word. God, where would we be without the Word? We would be in our own devices. We would be in our own sin. We would be uh, so far gone. But your word keeps us. Your word preserves us. Your word conforms us to the image of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would raise our view of marriage. Those of us here that are in the covenant of marriage, God, I pray that you would help us to raise our view in marriage in such a way that us husbands would love our wives more as Christ loved the church. And that wives here today would raise their view of marriage and that they would love their husbands. Lord, that they would love their husbands and that they would um, seek to um, honor and respect their husband as you have commanded them to do, as they honor you, Lord. Oh, Heavenly Father, those here that are not in marriage, I pray that they would raise their view of marriage, God, and that they would seek to keep themselves pure. That they would seek to not defile the marriage bed because they are not yet in the marriage bed. But Lord, I pray that you would lead them and guide them and that they would make no provision for the flesh. And that, Lord, if there's any today, God, that are in, in any sexual immoral, sexually immoral habits or relationship, Lord, that you would bring them to repentance. You would bring them to faith in Christ and that you would wash them of their sins. Lord, may this local church be a church that honors the marriage bed, that is pure. And Lord, as we do that, Father, help us to go outside these walls and declare the rule and reign of Christ over sex, to declare the rule and reign of Christ over marriage to our neighbors, to the governing authorities, 
to local authorities. And Father, help us to do it in a way that honors you with all patience and kindness. We thank you, Lord, for your word today. In Jesus' name, amen.